Hey everyone, Peter Zion here coming to you from Calgary on the Bow River just outside of downtown. Uh, today I wanted to talk very briefly about what's going on with Ukraine and the path of the war, not necessarily from a military point of view, <coughs> but from an economic and strategic point of view. Uh, one of the key things to remember about the war right now is that the Ukrainians are wildly outmanned. Uh, the Russians have a population of roughly 140 million and it has no problem throwing bodies in nearly limitless numbers uh, into the war effort. Right now we have had a first stage mobilization of about 300,000. There's another stage of at least 500,000 coming probably within a few days which means that by the time we get to May and June, the Russians will have a minimum of another a half a million men in the field. Uh, and it's not clear that the Ukrainians have enough bullets to take them all out. In this sort of conflict, where the Ukrainians simply can't trade a body for a body, it, it's more than training, it's more than morale, it's more than equipment. It's about speed, it's about mobility. So as important as rockets and missiles and jets and tanks are, and they are all critical to Ukrainian survival here, ultimately what the Ukrainians really need is the ability to move when the Russians can't. Now, in this they've won at least half the battle. Russian forces historically and currently can really only resupply by rail. That is how the Russian system has always worked. They don't have a, Ro a Russian road network, so they have to move things by train. And when the Kerch Bridge was taken out last year, the Russians lost their primary method of supplying to the southern front. They've had to make do with trucks, but the Ukrainians have been attacking the truck fleet, the tactical support truck fleet of the military, ever since the very beginning of the conflict. The Russians began the war with 3,000 military support trucks. They're probably down to only about 500 now. And so they've been going back to Russia and confiscating things like vans and uh, city buses in order to ferry troops and even artillery shells around the front. And I gotta say, when a city bus loaded with artillery shells hits a bump, things get a little exciting. But that's not enough for the Ukrainians. They have to inflict casualties on the Russians in, in excess, minimum excess of five to one, and we're just not there yet. Uh, if, if the pace continues, if this three to one, four to one ratio that we're seeing of Ukrainian fatalities versus Russian fatalities continues, the Ukrainians will lose in time. They have to turn this into a war of movement. And in that, the weather has really not been very cooperative. You can split the, the seasons in Ukraine into basically four chunks. You've got your summer when the ground is hard and dry. You've got the winter when it's hard and frozen. And then in the spring and the autumn, you have what are called mud seasons, where it's just not cold enough to freeze the ground, but it's wet enough that everybody gets stuck. So if you're on foot, you get stuck in knee-deep mud. If you're in a vehicle, ooh, all that mud turns your treads into just mush. And that is exactly the scenario the Russians found themselves in in the first part of the war. This is the primary reason that the assault on Kiev failed and the primary reason that the Russians ended up abandoning their entire position in the northern part of the country. Their troops, their, their army, their tanks were limited to be just being on the road and that made it very easy for infantry to pick them out with things like javelins. In this sort of situation, what do you do? Well, you wait for it to be winter, and then you attack when the ground is hard, and you use your superior mobility to cut Russian logistic lines. I've been expecting a push south, uh, not necessarily to reach the sea, but simply to get all of the roads within artillery range so that the Ukrainians can cut the supply line once and for all. That has not happened because it has been freakishly warm in Ukraine for several weeks now. Now, here in Calgary, it has not been above freezing for over a month, and so the river is frozen for the most part. But in Kiev, it hasn't gotten below freezing during the day for over a month. And in that sort of situation, they're experiencing a wildly, unexpectedly, unprecedentedly extended mud season. Now, this could change in 10 days, although the extended forecast doesn't suggest it and we could get a hard freeze before the end of January in which case February which is normally part of the frozen season could still see a light of dynamism out of the Ukrainians <coughs> but that is not in the cards at the moment and that means it's time to start thinking about what the next stage of the Russian assault happens to look like at the moment the Russians are waiting for spring so they can throw those extra half a million men and just come at the Ukrainians from multiple angles and if they do enough, with enough, 
then it really doesn't matter if the Ukrainians are mobile. They'll be overwhelmed, and that could be the end of the war right there. So right now, the Russians are just biding their time. They know they lack the logistical support to do any sort of broad-scale, multifaceted, complicated assault right now. So we're just, they're just throwing some bodies at a few places. Uh, if you've seen Bakhmut in the news, that's exactly what's happening there. But the, modestly, the Russians are kind of sitting on their hands and waiting. But they are doing what they can to destroy morale and destroy the Ukrainian economy and kill as many Ukrainian civilians as possible. They're using drones, they're using fighter-launched missiles, they're using cruise missiles, and they've started to use ballistic missiles to target specifically Ukrainian physical infrastructure, most notably electricity-generating plant. Their thinking is if they knock the electricity off in the depths of winter, you will, number one, kill a lot of civilians, Number two, you will demoralize the soldiers because if they see that their families back home are losing power, they got to wonder why they're on the front line if the front line's not very dynamic. It's an utterly despicable and inhumane strategy, but that doesn't mean it's stupid. And right now, the Ukrainians are suffering over and over and over again from these assaults. But once we get to spring, the Russians are going to change targets, not strategies, but targets. In addition to pushing for a broad-based assault on multiple axes, they will then shift their targeting from electricity infrastructure to something else. Because in the summer, taking out the power doesn't have the same impact that you do it on the winter. Ukraine is just not that hot that it needs mass electricity, electricity for air conditioning. I mean, this isn't Alabama or Texas. In the winter, you have to have it for heating. But in the summer, it's not so important. So at that point, expect the Russians to change their targeting from electricity infrastructure to something a lot more insidious, agricultural infrastructure. Targeting the factories that make the parts that repair the tractors. Targeting the tractors themselves. Targeting cold chain system. Targeting grain silos. Targeting ports. Right now, the Ukrainians have a series of deals that have been brokered by the UN with the Russians for getting grain out of their ports. It's mostly been corn because it's, uh, it's denser both in terms of weight and in terms of economics than wheat. Wheat exports have fallen to almost nothing. But if the Russians start targeting their ability to produce and transport grain at all over the summer, then any country that is dependent on what has historically been the world's fourth largest corn exporter and fifth largest wheat exporter is going to have a really, really tough year. We should probably expect to see targets shifting in May and into June. And it'll be obvious the impact that this is having by the time we get to September and October. And then the countries that would normally import from Ukraine come October, November, December are going to realize it's just not there. Most of those countries are in Africa, some are in South Asia, and the one I am by far the most worried about is Egypt. Egypt is poor, they import over half the grains they need to survive, mostly wheat, the wheat is already offline. And so we should expect to see significant upheaval, economic, humanitarian, political, across the Arab world and into South Asia and in Sub-Saharan Africa, all later in the second half of 2023. And at this point, there's just not a lot that anyone can do about it. Fertilizer supplies are already constrained, and the Black Sea is probably going to become a no-go zone once the Russians start targeting the ports altogether. I don't have a cheery note to end this one on. This is just pretty dark. I'll see you guys later. Uh, thanks, Aaron. I want to play the uh, opening monologue last night from Jimmy Kimmel. Let's play that. We're bringing Mike Lindell. Tonight is my pillow night. The pillow apocalypse has begun all the way from... Whatever planet he came from, Mr. MyPillow, Mike Lindell is here to finally answer the question, what if Ted Lasso was on the FBI watch list? <laughs> Mike, you know, was here once before a couple of years ago, and he must have had fun because he's been very anxious to come back. Hey, Jimmy, how was your new year? I, I, I'd love to come on your show, Mr. Jimmy. I would like to talk to old Jimmy Kimmel again. I would love to come on your show, Jimmy. Uh, if you'd like me to come on your show, uh, here I am. Heck, I think we got our anniversary coming up, Jimmy. Um, so we could, that would be a good thing. We could do it. I'm in L.A. I'll be in L.A. I'm going to be here all week. I'll, I'll, I'll come on your show anytime, and I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'm saying, yes, Jimmy, I will come. Jimmy, you'd probably, you'd probably double your audience. I got new stuff, Jimmy. How about we get together, Jimmy? Jimmy Kimmel. Jimmy Kimmel. Jimmy Kimmel. Jimmy. 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 Call me up, Jimmy. 
call me up and tell me what time you want. I'll be there. Jimmy, I haven't heard from you. It's not funny anymore, right? Uh, no, it's still funny. It's, in fact, it kind of gets funnier as it goes on, but... But well, we missed Mike, so we accepted his request on one condition. I told Mike he's welcome on the show if he agreed to do the interview from inside a Dave and Buster's claw machine. And guess what? Jimmy Kimmel has uh, Mike Lindell, I don't know, round three or four. Thank you for doing putting yourself through what Jimmy Kimmel's going to put you through, whatever it's going to be. Yeah, and by the way, everybody, I'm going to be inside of a claw game. Uh, inside of a, um, you know, where they, they grab the, the, the stuff because she doesn't want, you have to be vaccinated there, so he's good for his protection. No, well, hold on, I, I do want to make something clear. I did not insist that Mike be in a claw machine because he's not vaccinated. I insisted he be in a claw machine because it's hilarious. <laughs> this isn't a political statement. This is just for fun. Okay, many of the War Room Posse stayed up late last night, uh, way past their bedtime, myself included, to watch Jimmy Kimmel uh, live. want to thank Getter. We had it up uh, in a live stream. Thousands, I don't know, 10,000 people on there simultaneously watching uh, and commenting. Mike Lindell, uh, your thoughts and observations, sir? It was, uh, it, I, wouldn't, I, couldn't, I wouldn't have changed anything. I thought it came off amazing. Um, I was very surprised. I'm, by the way, I'm wearing my claw suit, Jimmy. I mean, I, I mean, Steve. <laughs> they, uh, they, uh, but I told, I couldn't believe that the, the fake Mike, they found the same tie, cross, and everything that quick. None of that was scripted. People say, Mike, was that scripted? Did you know the questions ahead of time? I didn't have a clue. And uh, like the, he, the comebacks were, well, Mike, did you think that was a fair election? Are you going to accept that RNC election? I said, absolutely. There were no machines. It was a paper ballot hand counted. No, it was uh, the interview. We're going to play, in fact, clips from that in the end was was very powerful. What um, it, what I was surprised at, he was open to uh, have a discussion about the machines and about the, the, the vote. And he complimented you at the end. I mean, he called yeah. Trump and Rudy and other people, oh, these are scam artists. But he said, you truly believe it. You could tell there's a level of respect there. We got about 30 seconds, Mike. What about that? Jimmy Kimmel actually respects uh, your opinion in this because he says you're a true believer. Yeah, no, he, he was awesome. We met, I met him backstage. He met his parents. He, uh, he, um, he, asked, he did ask about one thing about that. He said, well, Mike, wouldn't it take a long time to count the ballots? I said, Jimmy, you're a big fan of my show. Go to Frank's speech. Go to the Cause of America, Missouri, and look and check it out. We have the best hand counting system ever devised, and faster than the machines, and more accurate. Everything's better. So he uh, he was going to check it out. In France, they uh, they all do it in a couple of hours. Okay, Mike Lindell's with us. We're going to get back into look a little bit more of the Jimmy Kimmel. I think last time Mike was on it was ten million hits on YouTube, or some insane amount. I think this one's going to be the exact same. Short commercial break. Mike Lindell will join us on the other side. Characters who've come to prominence in the political era of Donald Trump. Our next guest is probably the most enthusiastic to help him overcome his debilitating fear of machines. We have installed him inside a claw machine for his interview tonight. And joining us now from the corner of Donkey Kong and Qbert, the My Pillow guy, Mike Lindell. Hello, Mike. Jimmy Crumble, is that you? It's me. <laughs> well, Mike. First question, Mike, is why do you think people don't take you seriously? Well, I, you know, I want to tell you this, Jimmy. Remember okay. when we were kids and uh, we questioned these carnival games, whether they were rigged or not? Yeah, right. But when, but when we spoke up back then, we didn't get sued, did we? No, that's right. Hey, Mike, get rid of that kid. Will you give him a toy or something like that? There you He's go. You got a winner. It's a rigged game. It's a rigged game. It's a rigged game. <laughs> Mike, I know that you're distrustful of machines. Now that you're inside one, do you feel differently? No, same thing. There are uh, computers can be rigged out there. Absolutely. In elections. You know that. Did you ask Donald Trump uh, whether you should do this or not? Do you run this sort of thing by him? No, I didn't, Jimmy. I did this all on my own. I wanted to be on your show. You, you, you know, you kept telling me to come on, but you, you know, I seen the monologue there. You said it's because to put me in here because I was wasn't vaccinated. You tricked me. You did it to be funny, huh? 
Yeah, no, I didn't. No, I didn't want you in there because you weren't vaccinated. I don't know. <laughs> to be honest, I don't even remember why I decided you should be in there. Just, <laughs> no, you said it on your show. It seemed like a good idea when it happened. I have to say, I was very surprised when you said you would do it. But you know, I put it out there, and so you said yes. So yeah. I, you know, I'm honoring that the, commitment um, that I made on we, we, we've we've got an entire clip. The whole entire clip of that is is very funny, Mike. The, the question a lot of people had because we streamed it last night. And want to thank Getter. Uh, obviously, since it's ABC's content, we had to take the thing down this morning. But we had a huge audience last night commenting, and I think uh, it's going to help Jimmy Kimmel because I think some people were interested enough. They may follow it. Uh, I wasn't particularly enthusiastic. Particularly, they had a uh, I think a twelve minute commercial block in the middle of the show i've never seen anything uh-huh. like it um uh-huh. but but i noticed there wasn't a my pillow ad in there uh talk to us about it people said why would mike do that why would mike do that why why do you go on to places like jimmy kimmel where they obviously like you and respect you but they're trying to mock you for the audience why do you do it it's very simple steve we keep getting the word out and expanding and expanding out people are looking for hope and even if it was all in comedy there, if you read between the lines, people, I ran into some, a couple in a uh, restaurant the other day in Texas. And the one guy said, you know, we were just talking about you. He said, wonder what Mike Lindell's been up to. A lot of people that are out there, they're, if they're just watching Fox or other things, they're not seeing, they're not knowing what we're doing, still fighting to get rid of these electronic voting machines. And this expanded just like the last time everywhere this expanded the audience and steve by the way i was there people were climbing over the fences in california for pictures and autographs and questions can you keep fighting for our freedom keep fighting for our freedom we went to a restaurant afterwards and they just kept coming and these are people that probably voted democrat back in the day and they're not going to do it again is that the reason you you put yourself through this? Is that this is a way to get to independents or Democrats, people that are not going to be see you on War Room or won't go to Lindell TV at least at least initially? You do this to get the word out, and if you can get two percent or three percent of the audience to follow up on it, then that's a victory. Well, you can't uh, remember you can't over uh, you can't out. Um vote a machine so we want to get we want to get the word out to get these election platforms fixed in the next two years and we're and we've got great things going on in every state so it is to get the word out and also you know like uh, our great real president donald trump said that we get as much fixed as we can and then we override everything overrun it and uh, uh he gets back in and then, and then we fix the rest of it um, if we don't have elections and we have selections, we'll lose our country forever. So it was basically, I don't care what I do. I did a video before and I said, I'll gladly humiliate myself uh, if it helps save our country. This is what it's about. It's a sac- I'll make every sacrifice I can. Well, you can tell that uh, the Jimmy Kimmel, they have a lot of respect because, like I said, they get in there and they say, hey, you're a true believer on this about these machines. I want to pivot for a second. We're going to get back to Kimmel in a moment. But uh, Politico's leads, with everything going on, and for the audience today, we're going to be packed from 5 to 7. It is so packed. I mean, we didn't even get to the Oversight Committee, MTG, bringing up the uh, the murder of Ashley Babbitt. There's so much going on. Debt ceiling, Federal Reserve. I've never seen a news cycle like this. Uh, but in that news cycle, Mike Lindell, the lead story in Politico this morning, the lead story with everything going on in the world, the lead story is about uh, Senate candidates and particularly potentially Kerry Lake in Arizona. But the real hit is that we can't, the Senate Leadership Fund is going to come into these races now in primaries because, you know, John Thune and Mitch McConnell says we can no longer have uh, these losers that are focused on basically election uh, integrity and election crimes. By the way, the power of the of the thing last night was about the uh, about the election crimes unit. Talk to us about that. Yeah, we're, uh, it's going to be formed very quickly. We've got, we've already had the, the foundation of it. It's going to be the election crime unit. Uh, it's going to have a lot of people behind it, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, resources behind it, and and it just got a lot more uh, credibility with this last week with the RNC. We're running for the RNC. Taught meeting with all them, and we have to. One of the things that, <clears throat> the narratives that we have to change is it's a complete lie that the people don't want. All these people that were cheated in the 2022 election from your Carrie Lakes, your Jim Marchant, your Mark Fincham, Matt DiPerno, Christina Caramo, they all had one thing in common. They were going to fix our elections after they won. 
And so the, the media tries to switch and say, oh, you know, and same way with the Republicans are going, okay, let's let's switch. Let's we can't have candidates like that that want to um, save our country. That's uh, and so that narrative has to be changed. It's not true. The people want one of the things that Jimmy Kimmel. The people wanted Mike Lindell. They voted in the Rasmussen thing. They wanted me to lead the RNC. But Steve. What they really wanted was not just me, they wanted what I stand for, to fix our elections. Everything manifests from stolen elections or from uh, the Uniparty controlling our elections. So we don't get to, and it becomes selections then. And uh, so these, uh, that's a big, that's completely But what false. happens, but, but hang on, but what happens when in Politico, the Senate uh, guys are saying right now, that, and they use Arizona's specific case, they say, as Arizona goes, so goes the country. And they're specifically saying in Arizona what they're going to fight. They don't want anybody talking about. Here you're in the middle of a steal on Kerry Lake. They're in a trial, uh, you know, in a trial, and you have the apparatus of the Republican Party coming out. I mean, much more powerful than Rana and 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 that and that that kind of sad sack show we saw in um, in Dana Point. That was that was a disgrace to put that on national TV. That report looked like student council from junior high school meets theater club. It was embarrassing. But this is not those guys. These these are the heavies that put the big money up in back of the Senate. They're saying that Carrie Lake is not acceptable, and the reason she's not acceptable, the real one of the real reasons is because she's she's uh, understands the cartels' involvement in Arizona, and she understands the invasion of our southern border. But they're saying is because she's an election denier. What message do you have for John Thune, Mitch McConnell, and the heavyweight donors in back of the United States Senate, sir? They're disgusting. They have no idea. Either they have no clue or they're traitors. It's one or the other. That's the only thing I can think of, Steve, because there, there's every everyone, the people do any poll. They want our elections fixed. They don't. That's the number one thing on people's that everyone you talk to in the street. I don't care if it's from California to New York. This people, it would be is that they're they're afraid you're in. We're getting into their territory. We're taking away that uniparty. And you're right. Arizona is the it's the. Um, I compare it to Georgia over there with Crooked Brad Rassenberger. These guys that are just, they're blockers. They're Republican blockers. And they're, it's this big swirl of, uh, of uh, hey, we're going to, we do this. And they think they're winning. They're not, Steve. We're well, winning. Well, 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 they're, so, they're, so, they're, so, they're so afraid. They're so afraid of Kerry Lake and you that they're pressing criminal charges. They're doing an investigation and press criminal charges on Kerry Lake for contesting yeah. this. And you know the thing's stolen. It's, it's, in, your, it's in your face. Yeah. Tell me about, before you play this thing at the end, tell me about the people that they're asking for autographs, climbing fences. Talk about the, the common man and woman in California that came up to you, yeah. sir, before you got onto the this Jimmy was, Kimmel show. We pulled up. I, do my, I did my own driving. I didn't have this big security guy. Jimmy Kimmel's security was even surprised about that. They go, what? And I, as I pulled up, all these people, fans, hanging things over the fences. God, can we get your signature? They're climbing poles and fences and going, help save our country. Please keep keep fighting. Keep fighting. These are people in California. A lot of them wearing masks. Or a lot of them are still still mandatory places like Jimmy Kimmel Studio. And But these were, uh, and the paparazzi's at the other end and all the people coming out. It didn't matter. Restaurants in the street, all of them coming up. But the common theme was Keep fighting, help save our country. I would ask him, hey, did you did you vote? What did, who did you vote for? Did you vote uh, Democrat? Yes. And they said, but we're not anymore. We get it. They're starting to understand, wow. Steve. They're starting to get it. And this stuff that's went on the last two years, that's actually going to help us in the long run. Yeah. Because pe- I think people need an example of how bad it can be with a regime that's in power right now that is so horrible and destroying our country opening them borders, letting the fentanyl in, and uh, people combining with people losing hope, and then an addiction. It's just uh, other things that are going on are horrible. But the people are it's bringing more and more people to the common sense, bu- common sense bucket, which that the election crime unit, we're going after them head on. We're being proactive, Steve. We're going, we're going to start right down there in Arizona. That's the tip of the spear. We're going to fight. If we, if we lose the appeal, we're going to the Supreme Court. We're never stopping there with the Cary Lake. Those machines were bad on the front end. They're bad on the back end. Electronic phony machines. If we don't have, if we don't have law in our country, what are we here for? It's a, and down in Arizona, they better start following our law and constitution. 
Mike, I'm going to ask you to hold through the break. I want to go. Let's play this clip right now. I'm going to play this clip, and then we're going to hold Mike through the break. we got Arthur Pavlosky also next. Let's go ahead and play this and go to break on this. Let's go ahead and play it. That you are convinced that there is some kind of a conspiracy or malfunction or whatever the case may be. I don't believe that Donald Trump believes that. I think Donald Trump is lying when he says he thinks the election was rigged. I think uh, Giuliani is lying when he says it. I think Kerry Lake is lying. I think for them, these are just excuses for losing an election. Uh, What do you say to that? Well, I say, um, Jimmy, no judge in the United States has looked at the evidence. They've all kicked the can on standing. No one has ever looked at the evidence based on merit. And uh, I'm just going to keep sounding the alarm until somebody looks at it. We gave it to the Facebook fact checkers, Alan Duke. He looked at it and he won't. Now he just went away because he knows it was true. I say to you, Jimmy, I'll give give the evidence to you. We'll come back two months later. I'll pay for your cyber guy if the the show can't afford it. (laughs) We'll have him check it out. You know, you're getting a big audience tonight, so you could afford it. Mike, Great. I'll bring Mike, you, the you see that? You see that little girl with the, the show. with that little girl with the overalls on? That's our cyber guy. <laughs> <laughs> you're looking yeah. good. I really <laughs> How much has this crusade cost you personally, Mike? Uh, over 40 million, and that's counting building your great network you watch all the time, Jimmy. That's right. TV, that's part of the cost. I'm your number one fan, yes, that's you for are. sure. There's no question about that. You, uh, your my pillows used to be in Costco, they used to be in Walmart, they used to be in Hello. Macy's, Bed Bath and Beyond, etc. Right Where the heck are they? Hello? Is anybody? Where the heck is they? Oh, oh. oh my goodness, it's another Mike Lindell. It's Jimmy Crumble. I can't handle it right now. I don't got time for you. I'm looking for the law offices of David Busters. Well, no, Mike. David Busters isn't a law firm. It's uh, like a Chuck E. Cheese for adults who enjoy wrestling. Well, I'm being sued for $1.3 billion, and I need some representation. So it's right right here in the law. So... Play. <laughs> you, Mike, you agreed to be, well, one of the mics agreed to be interviewed in the claw machine, so. I knew it! It's a machine! It's the Antifa Chinese devil crazy, and they trapped me inside. Don't worry, you sweet boy. I got a pillowcase full of quarters right here. Here, try, here, try the machine. Here, it's rigged. Here, it's rigged. No, you can't put, they take credit cards. They don't take, um... Pillowcases, uh, Mike. I'm self-defense. sorry. Self-defense. It's just a self-defense technique. Okay. All right. um, I'm not going to use no. Mike, it, it was it was an incredible it was an incredible incredible uh, hit last night with uh, Jimmy Kimmel, um, and I will either have you on tonight or maybe tomorrow because I want to go through the whole thing because it's quite powerful how you got the word out about machines and you're not going to back down. And you can tell Kimmel's got the respect for you, asking you know you're sincere. Uh, other people aren't, but you know that's him because he's a left wing Democrat. Uh, while we got you, we got a minute. Talk to me about this massive launch on My Pillow 2.0. People don't realize all the time, you know, this is kind of your side hustle. I understand right. it's for the country and you're saving the country and it's everything, but you you got a massive business to run with thousands of employees. Uh, walk right. walk us through uh, My Pillow 2.0. Uh, thank you for letting me talk about that because that's been that's so important because uh, uh, they, we've lost all the box stores like uh, like Jimmy said or most of them and. Um, but we we've been working on this for over a year. Uh, sleep is about height uh, and the right height of staying there. Everybody wants soft, but you want it to stay there and temperature. Well, they didn't have this technology back when I invented my pillow, and it's temperature regulating. Uh, it's a temperature regulating fabric, actually a thread, and we combine that. I had them work on it for months to make the most amazing fabric that goes over the my pillows patented fill, and we have the my pillow 2.0. See, we launched it here on your show. It is absolutely um, the most amazing pillow you'll ever sleep on. The best pillow. I didn't think my pillow could get any better, but it took it to a level. I've been sleeping on unbelievable. I've been sleeping on for two months, and everyone that's got it now is going, wow, this is it. It brings it sleep to a whole new level. Your audience got first, uh, was the first that could get it. Uh, we have, we, um, um, you can so buy one, get one free using promo code War Room. I put a square up. You have your square up there, Steve, and and uh, we can lose all the support we can get, but now you get the best sleep ever 
while supporting everything that's going on out here. And uh, my employees thank each and every one of the War Room Posse that uh, that uh, um, has uh, you know helped us out by buying the best products in history and the best pillow ever slept on. My Pillow 2.0, uh, go to mypillow.com uh, slash war room. You get to our square, you get all of it. You get a buy one, get one free for the war room posse. Mike, we look forward to having you back on. Amazing, uh, amazing hit last night with Jimmy Kimmel. Very, very powerful. Thank thanks, you so much. Thanks. I appreciate it. Yep, thanks for having me on. I tell you, we're going to get, we're going to try to play that in its entirety because it's quite moving. See the opening uh, monologue plus what uh, Mike did uh, to get the word out. Tomorrow in uh, Canada, Christianity is on trial, not just freedom of speech, but let's be blunt. Christianity is on trial. Pastor Arthur Pavlovsky, who we've had on many times before with his trials and tribulations. Uh, Pastor, tell us what happens tomorrow in in Calgary. Thank you so much for having me on your show again. It's always a a privilege and a pleasure. Uh, Tomorrow is trial of the century, and I'm not kidding you. Tomorrow, uh, not Arthur Pavlovsky, a little pastor from Calgary, Alberta, is on trial, but Canada is on trial. The Crown Prosecutor is not calling witnesses anymore. The Crown Prosecutor says that my sermon to the truckers during the truck convoy is criminal in nature. What did I say at the border of Montana and Alberta in Kutz? I told Canadians to stand up for their rights, to do it peacefully, to do it solidarity style, no guns, no swords, but to stand up for our rights. Well, the Crown Prosecutor with RCMP, it's like your FBI, decided that this kind of talk is criminal. So tomorrow, the 2nd of February, I uh, have to appear before the judge. It's a grand finale of my over 100 court cases, 16 arrests, and 340 citations. I am the first and the only Canadian ever to be charged um, uh, under the interfering of the uh, crucial uh, infrastructure under the Defense Act, like terrorism, I have also been charged with mischief over 5,000, which has 10 years of imprisonment and a breach of probation. So I was arrested outside of my house by RCMP detectives, undercover police, SWAT team, and uniformed uh, Calgary police, interrogated for hours, stripped naked, put in solitary confinement for 45 days, metal cages. They would drag me from my cell. They would put me to a concrete cell, no water, no washrooms. Then they would uh, lock me up hundreds of miles away without the knowledge of my family and my lawyers in a max spot. Max spot is a prison for the most dangerous offenders in the province of Alberta. And then, as you know, they took me to a psych ward without the evaluation of the doctors, without the knowledge of Alberta Health Services, everything they have done to me is criminal, is against the law, against the criminal code of Canada, against the Constitution, against the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And tomorrow is the great showdown, uh, showtime. So all the media are coming. Uh, if I lose, Canada has lost freedom of expression and freedom of speech. And Canada will no longer be a country where freedom of religion is protected. I just want to make sure this is, uh, I got this correct and the audience got this correct because we're going to be covering this extensively. The the powerful sermon you gave to the truckers on the Alberta-Montana border, they're saying that that is criminal speech. That That is basically what they're going to show tomorrow as your your crimes are embodied in that, in that, in that sermon, sir? That's right. The Crown Prosecutor with the Premier of Alberta stated publicly that I was inciting people to com- commit acts of violence. Uh, Here's what I learned, uh, which is quite fascinating. The Crown Prosecutor tomorrow is going to uh, try to uh, persuade the judge that the solidarity movement that I, of course, watched and I was referring to uh, was a violent movement. I mean, the whole government in Poland is the government from that era, a solidarity era. And I'm telling you, I saw it with my own eyes. The solidarity movement was a peaceful non-compliance like your civil rights movement in the United States. So it's going to be a gong show. I'm telling you, it's unbelievable. They're pushing and pushing and pushing. And more and more, I'm feeling like I am once again uh, living behind the Iron Curtain in China. Uh Arthur, Pastor, we're going to get back to you just real quickly. We only got like 30 seconds. Do you intend to back down at all in your preaching of the word of the living Christ, sir? Never, never. 
Never. Jesus went all the way to the cross. People were martyred, murdered. I saw people being shot, tanks on the streets when I was growing up. You see, good people don't bow before evil. Lions do not bow before the hyenas. Uh, Arthur, Plan Velocity, real quickly, social media, how do they get you, Pastor? www.streetchurch.ca streetchurch.ca We will push this out everywhere. Another patriot and hero. And another person prosecuted and persecuted for lived Christianity. We'll be back at 5 o'clock. Charlie Kirk takes up right now on Real America's Voice. The Charlie Kirk Show will be back from 5 to 7. And we will be on fire. See you then. Hey, everybody. Peter Zion here coming to you Washington, D.C. at the Watergate. And I thought today would might be a great time to talk about leadership. Now, I'm going to do a whole series of these while I'm in town, and you'll be seeing them over the next couple of weeks. But I wanted to start with the issue of the day, and that is uh, chairman of the CCP, Xi Jinping, in China. is currently in the middle of his party congress that happens every five years. And the debate in the China-watching world is whether he's going to make himself president for a third term or just dictator for life. Xi Jinping, what he does is kind of besides the point, he already is a dictator for life. So the trappings of how he decides to justify or advertise that are really kind of irrelevant and it's more important to look at the structure of China at this moment how he fits into that. China's a tough place to govern. It's a huge country with a massive amount of geographic diversity and even though the Han supermajority is over 90% of the population, the regions are so distinct that there's a lot of identities even within the ethnicity. <laughs> north on the Yellow River, uh, you've got the North China Plain, which is where about half the Chinese population lives, and it has always been tight in the grip of Beijing. In the south, you've got the cities from Shanghai going down to Hong Kong, which have always been a little secessionist and more integrated with foreign zones, especially when it comes to their food supply, so they've always had their own identity. And then in the middle, you've got the Yangtze River from Shanghai to Sichuan that has always been the most sophisticated and value-added and functional part of the Chinese economic system. Uh, and has usually resisted Beijing's rule, but they're still quintessentially Chinese. Ruling this is difficult because it means each region, each city has its own identity, its own idea of what should happen and not happen, and how to put it all together. And then in Beijing, you've got the emperor who has to manage all of this. And it means that China tends to oscillate wildly between two conflicting visions. On the one hand, there's local autonomy. Uh, you've got the locals who are determining what happens. Uh, they have a saying in China that the emperor is far away. And so the Chinese system tends to spin apart into dozens of competing systems. On the other hand, you've got the emperor who tries to hold it all together and tends to over-centralize as a result. And combining those two themes means that China has the most war-torn and internecine conflicting history of all of the major cultures of all the world. Now, in the leadership years before Xi, you know, this is um, not Mao, but his successor Deng Xiaoping and moving on from them, uh, there was this idea that there had to be a degree of balance. So leadership involved the south, the central sections and the north, although the north was very clearly in charge and the center was very clearly in the second position. <laughs> uh, but by the time we got to Xi, the, the decision was made that it's time for somebody who can represent all the regions and Xi was brought in as kind of a compromise candidate and then he took over. In his first five-year terms, it was a massive, what he called an anti-corruption campaign, but it was really a purge of all the competing power centers throughout the party and throughout the system. And whether you had a different view of what China should be or how to get there, you were kicked out. And if you were a local regional power boss, you were brought to heel. <coughs> In the second five-year term, Xi went after everyone who agreed with him to make sure that no one was capable of independent thought in his area. And that has made him the most isolated world leader on the stage right now, arguably the most isolated in Chinese history, and he's now more shut off from everything and all sources of information than even the Kim Dynasty of North Korea. And so we are seeing catastrophic policy decisions being made in economics and trade with COVID and security. Uh, and for the bureaucracy, you kind of go one of two ways. Uh, option number one is you are a true believer. 
and you think that Xi is the second coming, and so when you see him say something, you, you snap to and do your interpretation of it in the most zealous way you can come up with. This is one of the reasons why the lockdowns in places like Hong Kong have gotten so extreme and why you've got some idiots out there who are sanitizing airport runways because they think that's what Xi wants them to do to fight COVID. But the vast majority of the bureaucracy, knowing that if they get brought to Xi's attention, good or bad, it could be a disaster, they just don't do anything unless they're specifically told. So we're seeing a seizing up through the entire system because we have a leader that is so disconnected from everything, he's making decisions without any information whatsoever because nobody wants to bring it to him. And that means that the Chinese system, now its greatest threat, or sorry, the greatest threat to the Chinese system, the greatest reason to expect the Chinese system to collapse in the you know, foreseeable future is the leadership. Uh, you know, we think we have a problem in the United States going back and forth from W to Obama to Trump to Biden and all the issues and inconsistencies with that. It's nothing compared to the complete information lockdown that now exists at the very top in the Chinese system. Okay, next time I'm sure we're going to have to talk about Putin because, wow. All right, everyone take care. See you soon. Hey everyone, Peter Zion here, still in DC, coming to you from the Kennedy Center. Uh, we're talking about leadership, and the next person I want to talk about is Vladimir Putin. Now, ruling the Soviet system slash Russian system isn't nearly as much of a challenge as you might think. Yes, you've got billions of restive minorities. Yes, your national security strategy rests upon um, basically enslaving them and turning them into cannon fodder. But you do so via a very simple method. You use an intelligence service that infiltrates everything within your country, and whenever there is a hint of dissent, you stamp it out lethally and quickly. And when you have a system like that, you basically base your government on information control. And as long as the security apparatus is functioning, you can then press gang the entire population to do whatever you want. It's not particularly efficient from an economic point of view, but Russia has existed for nearly four centuries in its current form, more or less, and it does it put into position a kind of strategic stability within the country that is fairly durable. Now, the Putin government is the successor of a coup that happened in the Soviet Union in 1982. At that point in 1982, the KGB basically overthrew the other factions within the Soviet ruling coalition within the Communist Party. And so Andropov, Chermyrd, and Gorbachev were all heirs to that legacy, and Putin is the inheritor of that legacy. <laughs> now you combine that concentration of power with the collapse of the educational system in the Soviet system around 1986, with the country's demographic collapse, and it means that the total elite throughout the entire Russian system is only about 130 people, and Putin has had 23 years to basically purge it down to the people that he feels he can trust. So if Putin were to slip in the shower and fall into some duct tape and sit in a chair and throw himself into a pool, uh, we probably wouldn't have any serious policy changes because everybody who's left is more or less on the same page. Okay, so with an elite that is that concentrated and that small, the capacity to manage the entire system is limited. Now this isn't quite as bad as it is in China. I mean, China's a one-man show now, and even if Xi Jinping were the smartest person on the planet, he still wouldn't be able to micromanage everything in the system, and that's why we're seeing the policy ossification and cracks forming throughout the entire Chinese system. Now it's not that bad in Russia. But Putin has had to reach out to manage this system by allying with other factions. At one point, there was a bunch of technocrats like the former fine minister, uh, finance minister Akudrin, uh, but more reliably, he's partnered with organized crime. This is one of the reasons why the Russians have proven to be so troublemen in cyberspace until very recently. Uh, so you've got this combination, concentration of power, which urges corruption, that is partnered with organized crime, which loves corruption. And as a result, the whole system is cracking apart. Uh, Putin himself, in part because he doesn't... Man, I don't know how people live here. <laughs> Putin himself, uh, because of the concentration, has sharply limited who has access to him simply because there aren't a lot of people to choose from. So he has an inner circle of about six people three of whom are absolutely incompetent, like the defense minister, uh, Shoigu, who's one of his old buddies back from East Berlin. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Um, in terms of the people that are competent, one of them is the, the chair of the KG, or KGB, FSB, um, whose name, Primakov, no, crap. 
Petrushev, wow, sorry, it's been a long month, uh, who is providing him with information on internal security but is of less use on the battlefield. Uh, and his chief propagandist is one of the six people who's in the inner circle. So imagine if one of your six sources of information that you used to manage everything in your life was either Rachel Maddow or Tucker Carlson. Uh, he's just not getting information that's great. And it doesn't help that he kind of insists that everybody lie to him about everything. So we get this brittle system that's very top heavy, but not top competent. And in that sort of environment, in dynamic situations like, I don't know, a war, you are flirting with state collapse. On the security front, now the Russians launched their assault in Ukraine not because they were mad or because Putin has an ego or wants to rebuild an empire, no. The Russian demographic is in collapse. Uh, the Russian ethnicity is going to cease to exist this century. It's just a question of how long the state can hold on. Ukraine is on the way to two of the big invasion access points into the Russian space. And with a demographic that's in collapse, Putin rightly feels that unless they can control those gateways, the next time there's a major war, the Russian system will dissolve uh, because there won't be anyone to defend it. So you have to concentrate forces in the access points to make a block. That's what this is all about. This is what it's always been about. That strategic desperation is why this war is happening. But the only thing that would be worse from the Russian point of view of not launching it and probably seeing the Russian system di disintegrate between 2040 and 2070 would be to launch it and fail because that would leave Russia completely open to all those invasion avenues. At the same time, it has paid all the costs for the war. At the same time, it is now under a degree of sanction from pretty much everyone as long as this government is in power. So we are looking if the Russians lose this war at a complete disintegration of the system on the time frame of like 10 years. Remember, with the recent mobilization, we're pulling about a half a million Russian men in their 20s out and throwing them into the meat grinder. They might be able to make a difference. You throw a half a million men at anything, it's gonna make a difference. But it's gonna come at the cost of the depletion of the last generation that the Russians have to even generate kids in the first place. There are less than 8 million Russian men in their 20s, and we're now looking at about 10% of them being involved directly in the war. This isn't gonna be the last mobilization either, because the Russians don't have the tech. All they have are bodies. And in half of the wars that Russia has been in, where they've won, they've won on numbers. But this time around, those numbers are all they have, and when they're gone, they're depleted and they're never coming back. There is no next generation. So Putin, like Xi, is likely to preside over the end of his country. All right, that's it for me. Uh, next time we're talking about the Saudis, Mohammed bin Salman, woohoo, take care. Hey everyone, Peter Zion here coming to you from the Reflecting Pool in DC, which is uh, up opposite the Jefferson Memorial, which is probably my favorite of the memorials, uh, and Jefferson, my favorite president. So I thought it would be a good drawback to talk about perhaps the world's most un-Jeffersonian leader and one of my least favorite people, Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. Now, uh, Mohammed bin Salman is, um, what's the best way to put this? He, he's the quintessential millennial. Uh, he's entitled. He is gets very disappointed and a little pouty when he doesn't get his way. But he also is very good at managing people. And that means that even though he's every bit as much of a dictatorship as uh, Xi Jinping in China or Vladimir Putin in Russia, uh, he's much more successful. He's able to actually run people effectively, have conversations with them, manage some of the details. And the job that he has to do is a lot easier than either of those two mega states. Saudi Arabia has a mid-sized population. You're really only talking a little more than 30 million people. And it's a one horse show when it comes to the economy. It's really just oil. And especially if you're bringing in people to work the oil fields for you, you get to decide policy and foreign policy and strategic policy and general direction, but the details are handled by competent people. So a dictatorship can work in a place like Saudi Arabia where it'd be far more difficult than a place like China or Russia. So a little bit of background about how he got there. Uh, over a century ago, the tribe of Saud, which ultimately MBS is descended from, cut a series of deals with the merchants who controlled the cities on the west coast. Now, at the time, we're talking pre-industrial here, so the tribe of Saud was basically a bunch of desert raiders, whereas the folks on the coast saw themselves as more sophisticated, and that's 
pretty much accurate. Uh, and the deal that was cut was that social policy and political policy would be set by the tribe, whereas the, the, the folks on the coast would handle all the trade and all the economics. It was a good deal for both, and to be perfectly blunt, the folks on the coast got the better part of the deal. But then after the 1920s, <laughs> oil was found in the interior, and all of a sudden the tribes had more money than they knew what to do with, and they took over completely, isolated the coast, and in essence, the tribe of Saud became the House of Saud. So you've got these people descended from desert raiders who were hyper-violent, who all of a sudden had more money than God and could impose whatever whim they had upon the world. For a long time, the leadership of Saudi Arabia were a series of kings, princes, elevated to king, called the Sidari Seven. Uh, seven brothers, all born from the same wife of the initial king of Saudi Arabia. Uh, but they ruled until they died, and they were all more or less the same age, and so they were getting older and older and older and more and more decrepit. So it became very clear in Saudi Arabia that they needed to skip a generation, and they eventually settled on uh, Mohammed bin Salman as the crown prince, and he's basically the king now. Now, he is a millennial, he is young, which means assuming he's not assassinated, always a risk, uh, he is likely to be the king of Saudi Arabia for the next 50 years. So Saudi Arabia has something that the Russians and the Chinese will never have. Continuity of government while controlling a resource that no one can do without. Because it's not an issue of relocating the manufacturing base. You either have the oil or you don't. So this is a country that is long for this world. And as such, the ambitions of Mohammed bin Salman and the goals of Saudi Arabia are not simply fused. They matter on a global scale. And by far the country that has the most to be concerned about because of this is Iran, who the Saudis have always seen as their primary rival. Now the Iranians, for their part, have a culture that stretches back over a thousand years. Uh, they say over 3,000, and it's not a ridiculous claim. Now, this, the Iranians have all kinds of problems, but I think their biggest one is that cultural history gives them a degree of arrogance, and so they just look down on the Arabs. But then here you have Saudi Arabia with a significantly larger economy, who has better relations with the United States, with Japan, with China, with the United Kingdom, with France, with Turkey, with all of the world's powers, because ultimately the Saudis have something that they all need. Which means, in a post-American Middle East, the question isn't, will the Saudis try to take out the Iranians? It's how many allies will they be able to rally to do it for them? And as we get into a bigger and bigger energy crisis globally, MBS's goal of completely destroying the Iranian state all of a sudden looks a lot more feasible. It is easy for the Iranians to close the Strait of Hormuz and restrict energy uh, flows to the rest of the world but it would be a snap for the Saudis to do it. And unlike the Iranians, the Saudis actually have other outlets. They can get over half their crude out via pipe to the Red Sea and ignore anything that happens in Hormuz. So a war is shaping up in the Middle East that is going to be globally consequential. And with the United States no longer on scene, it all comes down to the ambitions and the foibles of a guy who thinks it's okay to take a hacksaw to journalists who write things about you that are not sufficiently flattering fun times ahead. All right. See you soon.